0: I'm Gregory Berg. The following Morning Show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in November of 2003, just ahead of the 40th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We are resharing the interview today to commemorate the 60th anniversary of that event. I am tremendously pleased to uh, welcome back to the Morning Show Kathy Trost, uh, who I have spoken to once before. Uh, She was co-author of an acclaimed book called Running Toward Danger, Stories Behind the Breaking News of 9-11. She is affiliated with something called the Newseum, and uh, they were responsible for that uh, remarkable book about the events of 9-11 and how journalists uh, struggled to cover that incredible event. Now she is uh, one of the collaborators on an equally fascinating book called President Kennedy Has Been Shot. Uh, and it's, this is something uh, released by Sourcebooks of Naperville, Illinois. And as is uh, usually the case with their publications, this book includes a companion compact disc which features uh, audio excerpts that uh, uh, give us uh, a, a sense of real immediacy uh, concerning those horrifying events of 40 years ago. Kathy Trost joins us for a few minutes to uh, talk about uh, the, the experience of, of working on this book. Kathy Trost, we welcome you back to The Morning Show.
1: I'm always delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Briefly, if you would, tell us about the museum.
1: It's the world's first interactive museum of news. Um, it's a fascinating place. I was a reporter Uh, for many years for the Wall Street Journal and UPI and the Detroit Free Press, and I think it's the first time my kids understood what I actually did in life is when we went to the museum. It's got wonderful uh, exhibits about uh, it takes you behind the news, which is its mission to show how and why reporters operate. It's closed um, for a couple of years, so they break ground at the end of this year for a fabulous new facility, Right snack in the middle of Washington, D.C., on Pennsylvania Avenue, which is just going to blow your socks off. It's so hmm. wonderful. Tell
0: us about this particular project and uh, how this collaboration took place between Sourcebooks and the museum.
1: Well, the museum wanted to do another book, much like Running Toward Danger. Um, the sort of premise is that um, reporters are the first drafters of history, they're often the eyewitnesses who bring back the first news particularly in the era of Kennedy when there weren't live minicams or instant satellites and there was absolutely no live television on the motorcade route. So, in fact, reporters were did have the most intimate front row seats. And the idea was after the Running Toward Danger book, which examined how did reporters cover nine eleven and all its implications? What were other compelling historical moments that we could view through the eyes of the journalists who covered it? And we could think of no more compelling moment than the assassination of Kennedy.
0: And, of course, what makes it still more compelling is that uh, this book is released on the eve of the 40th anniversary of those events. Uh, uh, that's, of, that's, of course, no, no accident, but nonetheless uh, it... it, it, it It's nice that things work out as they do.
1: Well, it absolutely is geared toward the 40th, but also with the recognition that many of the reporters who were there are dying. Uh, Forty years later, they were in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and some of the people who we had hoped to interview for the book as we were reporting the book actually died while we were reporting the book. So Susan and I felt a real urgency because these are wonderful, wonderful eyewitnesses whose memories really need to be recorded for history.
0: Wow. Tell us about the actual work of writing this book, of putting it together. How did you set about such a, 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 a challenging project?
1: Well, Susan and I are both uh, recovering reporters; we like to call ourselves, and we <laughs> um, so we know the uh, we know the pressures of a deadline, and we worked very fast on this book. We started only last February and finished it within about four months, which meant a very heavy schedule of interviewing journalists in Dallas and Washington and New York and um, a bunch of other places by phone. We first found about 40 journalists that we put together who were alive, who'd been um, in Dallas either with the White House Press Corps flying down from uh, D.C. for for Kennedy's visit or local reporters on the ground down there and then reporters in Washington and New York as well to talk to, and and we began to interview them in person. We also found a treasure trove of oral histories that have been collected at uh, presidential libraries like JFK and Lyndon Johnson, and also the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, which is actually built on the site uh, where the sniper's nest is still preserved in, in replication. And they have an oral history program that's that's very strong there, and they'd interviewed a lot of journalists over the years. So those who who had died and who we didn't have access to, we were able to get through those oral histories. And we think putting it all together, particularly with the audio CD, which I'd never done before, and um, the audio is so strong on this um, that I think it really makes the book. It's it's really compelling.
0: Do you have any sense of the journalists that you spoke to uh, reflecting back now 40 years um, I mean, obviously, nobody who lived through those events, and particularly those who were working in the midst of those events, they, they obviously will will never, ever forget the day. But it is 40 years later, after all. What is your sense of the clarity of of, of, of recollection and... Was putting this book together, uh, in any part in the process, is, is it possible for us to know just how accurately these journalists are remembering the details of that terrible day?
1: Well, we say in the book right up front that journalists' memories were remarkably accurate and or, were remarkably vivid, let's put it that way, and that they remembered details in startling vividness. But we do say that memories fudge over time. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday at the time, but in fact... These people, I think, had been through such a shocking moment in their lives. And many will talk about in the book their own personal grief, which they had to hold in while they were reporting the story. And and sort of much like 9-11, a sense of national terror, that really this was part of a much larger conspiracy. As you know, at that time there were fears that the Russians were behind this and that this was part of a much bigger plan. And so working with all those things, I think these memories were just seared, Um, into them, and they can recall, and many of them would say to us, we can remember this better, you know, than something that happened last week. And so I I have a fairly strong faith in in the accuracy, and much of it was double-checked against historical records.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Kathy Trost. She is co-author of a book called President Kennedy Has Been Shot, Experience the Moment-to-Moment Account of the Four Days That Changed America. Uh, The book is published by Sourcebooks uh, with the cooperation of the Museum, um, Kathy Trost. One of the things that was uh, striking to me, especially as I listened to the audio disc, was um, I found myself, on the one hand, really admiring the work of journalists on the scene, and yet on the other hand, I was really sort of struck by, and maybe even once in a while, kind of dismayed by, by the quality of their coverage. After all, in an age when this kind of coverage was not a customary thing at all, compared, for instance, to the journalism done on nine eleven, uh, it 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 strikes me as being a bit more accomplished. With, with uh, do you know what I'm saying? And and, and I, I do,
1: wonder- and I but I think there's a reason, and I think it was related to technology. Um, I mean, really, we we underestimate how difficult it was to report this story. They they technology was so much more primitive then. Um, TV cameras required time to warm up, for instance, before operating. And so when Cronkite went on the air with the first national television bulletin, you didn't see his face. You just saw a bulletin slide with his voice over because CBS didn't have a camera warm enough to go on the air right away. Um, they carried, you know, huge tape recorders and big, big manual typewriters. And they had to stand in line for landline phones and nickels and with filled their pockets to make calls you were only as good as your story was as only as good as you being able to find a phone in those days to call it in and it may sound minimal but it was a major factor in how quickly they were able to get the news out and how thorough of coverage they were able to do sort of on the run like that and my feeling is that given those constraints that they actually did a pretty extraordinary job of reporting particularly because in that absolute chaos there were very few mistakes made there was a mistake made broadcast at one point that lyndon johnson had also been hit which was quickly retracted and there was a lot of discussion about oswald that perhaps may not have been fair by today's standards that he was but this was partly the police dallas police almost immediately um it said, you know, the case was wrapped and, and he was the assassin, and reporters reported that without sort of due process. But I think it was pretty darn good.
0: Give, given uh, when we are talking about it, I, I, I certainly agree. I guess one of the things that I, I was struck by is there's, there's a couple of moments. For instance, the, the, the stunningly shocking moment when Lee Harvey Oswald himself is shot by Jack Ruby. Uh, it is just interesting. Uh, one feels for the reporters who are on hand, who are left all but speechless by that kind of uh, event. And and maybe in a way that's OK. I mean, a, a journalist today uh, would probably find a way to fill the fill the air with with maybe more polished sentences, but I'm I'm not sure what the point of that would be.
1: And, you know, they were frightened, too. Ike Pappas, who was a young New York radio reporter at the time and who later went on to become a distinguished CBS correspondent, was down there. And he fell to his knees. He thought he was going to get caught in the crossfire. They were absolutely stunned by what was going on. Ike Pappas and, and Tom Pettit of NBC News and others stood, were brushed shoulders with Jack Ruby as he bound forward to shoot... Oswald, and I don't think we can even imagine what it was like to be in that police basement with that chaos and try to report a breaking story. NBC was the only one that had a live camera. Uh, ABC and CBS, the two other major networks of the era, were both taping for replay later and immediately switched, but lost that sort of historical moment. I mean, this dreadful first live assassination in television history. Mm. But they were frightened, too. Uh, the reporters will admit that they had no idea what was going on, and they also didn't know, what do you say? It looks like he's been shot. Do I say this? Oswald's been shot. Oswald's been shot. That's what, you know... Well, that and, and, that's,
0: and that's the extent of what was known at that moment. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not the moment, of course, for, for idle speculation to occur. Right. I, I guess the thing, and, and you're so correct, of course, to remind us about the time that we are talking about, there is... Uh, a slightly raw and unpolished quality to uh, much of what we hear and and see. If if we're ever able to to watch any of these excerpts uh, as well, uh, but but understandably so. And that's one of the things that I suppose takes us back to this moment in history uh, all the more.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and I'm I'm sort of um, biased toward it because you know. There's no, there, today there would be an instant thematic headline slapped on you know, cable coverage, you know, the death of a president, and we would, there would be a crawl, a news crawl across, and there would be split screens, and there would be instant expert analysis. In those days it was so primitive that for a long time the networks, you know, for an hour or so, couldn't get any kind of um, moving picture on the screen, and they would literally hold up still photos on the anchor desk to show <laughs> what was going on in Dallas. It, it really is astonishing when you go back and look at it. Hmm.
0: Uh, I wonder if you remember from some years back on Arts and Entertainment, On I, I'm assuming it was on an anniversary of the JFK assassination, although I don't remember for sure, they replayed an enormous amount of NBC's coverage of November 22nd in uninterrupted fashion, yes. I mean, hours of it. I wonder if you remember that. Yes. That was a great education, I think, for many of us. who uh, And, and, and we, we saw with our own eyes you know, much of what you talk about in terms of the s- serious technical limitations of the day. And given that, it is amazing what they uh, and their counterparts were able to accomplish.
1: But, you know, one thing that they did have in, the, in that day that they have less of now uh, is access. And and that sort of was a counterbalance to the technology. Um, They they had incredible access. I I was astonished, Susan and I both, as we interviewed reporters, about how close they could get to people in power then and to breaking news. Um, The press pool car was just five cars behind Kennedy's car in the uh, motorcade. And after the shooting, the press pool car sped around the vice president's car and got to Parkland second after the president's car. And the reporters jumped out and literally could stand over the the presidential limousine parked at the emergency gate with Kennedy's body still inside and Mrs. Kennedy cradling him. I mean, this would never happen today. And they were inside the Texas Book Depository building in seconds and following the police around as they searched Mm. for the sniper's nest and all sorts of other details like that that really showed that to some degree, for better or worse, they had access then that gave us a much more intimate view of what was going on.
0: We're speaking with Kathy Trost. She is co-author of a book called President Kennedy Has Been Shot. And of course, we're airing this interview on the eve of the 40th anniversary of that uh, traumatic event. One of the things which, uh, which the book does, which I think is so helpful to the reader and listener, is a bit of context is set for President Kennedy's trip to Dallas, why he was there in the first place. And there is something especially Eerie and chilling about hearing some of the words which he delivered uh, earlier that that morning in in Fort Worth. Yes,
1: he was. Um people had warned Kennedy not to go to Texas um he was going because the ticket needed Texas's uh, electoral votes in the upcoming presidential election and there had been a big rift in the democratic party there that that he was going to go down to try to heal but i mean we it's hard to remember but at the time Texas was really a tough place right wing groups had been active there uh, adlai stevenson the ambassador to the un had been hit over the head with a protester sign less than a month before a lot of people told kennedy not to come and he came and he came with his wife, who was a very reluctant campaigner, and this was a very rare appearance that Mrs. Kennedy was making with him. And I think they felt instantly better when they got to Texas and got such a warm reception in Fort Worth and uh, along the motorcade route the next morning. But he did talk to the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce breakfast uh, the morning that morning before they set off for Dallas, and it was his humor was so quick and so funny, and there's a bit on the, the audio CD and in the book where, where he says, uh, you know, he, he, he feels much like when he went to Paris recently and he, it, and the trip was pitched more as him accompanying Jacqueline Kennedy than the other way around. It, it, he, it, was just, it just really warms you and makes you understand immediately the charisma, which I think a lot of people who weren't alive then don't understand.
2: For the White House correspondents covering President Kennedy, it's a routine road trip. There are stops scheduled across cross Texas. Kennedy, the popular young president, is already thinking ahead to the 1964 election. He needs Texas' 25 electoral votes. Kennedy and Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson are going to Johnson's home state to help mediate a political feud in the Democratic Party there. The president's wife, Jacqueline, who rarely makes political appearances, accompanies him to Texas. Friday morning, November 22nd, President Kennedy speaks to an enthusiastic group at a Chamber of Commerce breakfast in Fort Worth about national defense.
3: This is not an easy effort. This requires sacrifice by the people of the United States. But this is a very dangerous and uncertain world. As I said earlier, on three occasions in the last three years, the United States has had a direct confrontation. No one can say when it will come again. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy, certainly not in this decade and perhaps not in this century.
2: Here, Kennedy demonstrates his considerable wit and draws laughter with a quip about his fashionable wife.
3: Two years ago, I said that uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I
0: wear. Well, <laughs> of course, the other thing that is so in- incredible is in-, in hearing some of those remarks or, or hearing coverage of-, of the president as, as his uh, plane touches down in, in Dallas, uh, we have journalists talking about this in, in fairly matter-of-fact terms they, of course, have no idea what is about to unfold.
1: No, and no preparation. I mean, you know, beyond the primitive nature of it, they don't have a clue, and um, they're caught completely. I mean, Hugh Seidey was a White House correspondent for Time magazine at the time, and he wrote in on one of the press buses and said, Frankly, I was bored. This was just another campaign trip through another town, and I was sort of, you know, half asleep in the bus. So yes,
0: absolutely unprepared. As the assassination itself occurs, I want to ask you just briefly about the the only audio that I was expecting to hear but didn't hear, unless I just missed it somehow. Uh-oh. Uh oh. I mean, there's so much there's so much it here, but I don't remember hearing on the compact CD, uh, compact disc. Uh, remind me or correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we hear that account of someone that's on the motorcade route who says uh uh it It appears that something has happened, something has happened in the parade route um i I don't remember that being here
1: you know we had that piece of uh audio and originally had even started to cut it into the c d and we're told and this is complicated and and I should get the story right is that there was some question about the provenance of that
0: Ah interesting
1: and whether there had been um some uh, melding together of some different pieces of some tapes.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, we did, in fact, not use that in the end.
0: Interesting. It's, it's of course, heard quite a lot, and it's not that it's a, a gaping void by any means. On the other hand, there are all kinds of recordings that are a part of this that uh, have absolutely never been heard by the public before, including all these dispatches between police officers.
1: Yeah, on uh, live radio.
0: Now... Help us understand why, how, and why does that even exist?
1: Well, I guess the Dallas Police Department kept records of its tape-recorded police transmissions, and through some amazing, uh, you know, miracle of history, they were preserved and intact and at the National Archives. But it really, as fuzzy as they are and sometimes difficult to hear as they are, they really, I mean, that's where the the hair rises on the back of my neck listening to those, uh, messages, because you really do get the sense that you are there.
2: At this point, eyewitnesses are reporting that the shots appeared to come from the Texas School Book Depository. Police are ordered to the scene. A Dallas radio reporter describes the terrifying scene at the Book Depository building.
3: KBOX Mobile News Unit Number 4 here at the Texas School Book Depository, where the area being completely roped off by Dallas police, the K-9 units here at the scene, I don't know what far, but a fire truck is standing by. Most of the officers, literally hundreds of them, armed with sawed-off shotguns, shotguns,
2: pump shotguns, automatic shotguns, and submachine guns. Here, an eyewitness tells Dallas television station WBAP-TV what she saw.
1: Two shots rang out, and he grabbed his
3: chest, and a look of pain on his face and fell across toward Jackie,
1: and she uh, fell over on him and said, my God, he's shot. You know, the the, the police transmissions, uh, you'll hear Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry saying, you know, something's happened at the triple underpass, all men report to that area. Then you hear the Code 3, which is the emergency all-points bulletin for all police officers to report to the Texas Book Depository, you hear Officer J.D. Tippett's voice calling in from his station outside uh, a few blocks away, minutes before he's shot to, get to death, apparently, by Lee Harvey Oswald. You hear the hunt for the sniper and you follow it through the alleys and streets of Texas, Dallas, and then you're actually there when he's apprehended in the Texas theater. So I found that very compelling.
0: One thing that your book reminded me of... Uh, is the fact that at that moment that lee harvey oswald fires those shots many of the people who were right there on the scene unfortunate to be eyewitnesses to this terrible thing uh did if, if you didn't actually see what occurred uh, to the president uh you you didn't really know for absolute certain that those were, were gunshots no. Um, you know, Robert McNeil, for instance, who, uh, a correspondent for NBC News, you quote him as saying, uh, I said, was that a shot? Several people said, no, no. Several others said, I don't know. And finally, uh, there's there two more shots, and stop the bus, stop the bus. I mean, just in that moment of trying to figure out, are those gunshots? Is somebody being shot?
1: Right. Most people thought it was uh, fireworks or a motorcycle backfire. They really didn't put, the only people who put it together that it were shots were people in the press pool who were uh, gun fanciers, who had shot guns and who knew what they sounded like, and people like legendary UPI reporter Merriman Smith, who immediately knew it was a gunshot. And his story is so interesting because he was in the pool car with his competitor from Associated Press, Jack Bell, and in those days what passed for cutting-edge technology was a radio telephone in the pool car and Smith heard the shot knew what it was grabbed the phone and tied up the phone for the whole way to the Parkland Memorial Hospital dictating the story to UPI uh, headquarters and while Bell his competitor beat him (laughs) with his hands trying Mm. to get the phone so they literally had a fist fight in the car and Smith did file the first bulletin that really... In those days, newsrooms were absolutely dependent on the wire services. We don't think of that much anymore. But it was the ringing bells of the teletype machines in newsrooms that alerted you that something was wrong. Hmm. And his first bulletin really tipped the world to this horrible tragedy.
0: I thought it was interesting, Merriman Smith says at one point um, that he was uh, maybe 150 to 200 yards behind the president's limousine. He saw the president's car falter briefly, saw this flurry of activity, and then be, uh, behind was the car with vice president uh, Johnson then secret service agents and then they were behind that car and he said our car stood still for probably only a few seconds but it seemed like a lifetime
1: well yes i mean and i think it was everything within seconds it was chaotic and he was lucky their driver actually roared on to parkland hospital the two press buses would not the bus drivers methodically drove on to the Dallas Trademark where Kennedy was to have given a speech. So they were diverted over to the Trademark before they could even find out Mm. what happened and get over to the hospital.
0: Newsweek's Charles Roberts says, Our bus came to a halt. Everybody started screaming different (laughs) advice to the bus driver. A few of us jumped out onto the pavement but didn't get far from the bus because from long experience with motorcades, you know that they start up suddenly. If 60 people get out of a bus and the motorcade starts up, they simply can't get back in i mean it's interesting to think about those sort of momentary decisions which a journalist has to make in in a split second uh and and there's no script to follow
1: there's no script to follow and there's a sense that if you pick wrong you really blow the story as crass as that sounds and so a couple people did jump off the bus robin mcneil as you said who was from nbc at the point jumped and got off the bus and was one of the first people to run into the Texas Book Depository building and interestingly was told later that a man he asked who was running out uh, where's the phone was probably Lee Harvey Oswald.
0: Mm. Uh, You quote someone from the Dallas Morning News on the scene saying it was just complete chaos because people didn't know where to run. Nobody knew where the shots were coming from. Nobody knew who had been hit, if anybody. Nobody knew where to run to protect themselves.
1: Right. And I think it was Tom Wicker who said, I thought it was the most beautiful metaphor. As you looked out over what became known as the grassy knoll later, it was as if a giant hand had just passed over the hill and and pushed everybody down. Everyone was down on the ground screaming. There's the famous picture of a family sheltering its little boy. There was a secret service man pounding on the ground in frustration and grief. Um, And I think you know,
0: absolutely no one knew what was going on. Hmm. I want to ask you about uh, some remarkable audio, which is part of this uh, compact disc, including one of the accounts of, of, of that moment of, of, of the shooting by Lady Bird Johnson, mm-hmm. who, of course, within minutes, would become the new First Lady as her husband was sworn in as the new president. Uh, explain to us th- this, uh, this audio account of, of Lady Bird Johnson.
1: Apparently, Mrs. Johnson um, that weekend started an audio diary, and after the events, she went when she was back in Washington. That uh, unbelievable weekend began to record her memories of those days in an audio diary, and that's been preserved at the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. We didn't know those tapes exist; I'd never heard them, and I was just really astonished by the poignancy and the, and the candid nature by which she talks during. These tapes, and I'd advise anyone who wants to go further to go online to the to the uh, presidential library uh, where they're accessible. Because she really takes you behind the scenes. She was in the in the car, you know, right behind Kennedy's car, and she talks about the moment of the shooting. She talks about sitting in the in the uh, in a t- tiny room at Parkland Hospital, waiting to find out whether he was going to survive or not. The terrible moment when they were t- when someone walked into the room and addressed her husband for the first time as. Mr. President, and they knew, you know, the rush to Love Field, the return, and then these t- t- terribly, p- t- sort of sad moments when she tries to comfort Mrs. Kennedy at the hospital and on the plane ride back, and doesn't quite know the words to use, and you just, you just get the most poignant look at history through her eyes. I think.
0: Absolutely, I remember her being uh, interviewed by Ted Koppel several years ago on Nightline. Talking uh, about, among other things, the assassination, and I remember her saying those bewildering events. She said it it was like being in a play that uh, that I had hadn't written or never read. I mean, it's like I mean nobody knows this play; it hasn't even been written yet. I haven't even read this play, and here I am on stage. You know, acting out this this role, which I, I never dreamt would, would be mine.
1: Yet she left behind one of the most dramatic and coherent accounts you Absolutely. Know, of, of the whole scene.
0: And carried herself with, with such grace. Yes.
2: Aboard Air Force One, Mrs. Johnson tries to console Mrs. Kennedy, who insists on riding in the rear of the plane with the casket. Mrs. Johnson later recorded in her diary how painful it was.
0: The casket was in the
1: hall. I went in to see Mrs. Kennedy, and I don't, oh, it was a very, very hard thing to do. She made it as easy as possible. She said things like, oh, Lady Bird, it's always good. We've liked you too, so much. She said, I remember other things she said. Oh, what if I had not been there? I am so glad I was there.
0: Among the other items which are part of this companion uh, compact disc, which are truly extraordinary, are the communication ground air uh, between the White House Situation Room, I believe, and uh, and the plane, which at that hour was carrying Press Secretary Pierre, uh, Pierre Salinger, and members of the cabinet. Uh, tell us how you were able to secure these recordings and, and what we learned from listening to them.
1: Well, again, they were at the National Archives and, and very little heard. I'd never heard them before. And um, just astonishing windows into what was going on behind the scenes that day. Six members of the president's cabinet, including Secretary of State Dean Rusk, were flying to Tokyo for trade talks, and they were some miles west of Honolulu, when their teletype ticker on their plane began to broadcast that first bulletin. And White House Press Secretary Pierre Salinger was aboard, and they uh, quickly established communications with the White House Situation Room through this ground-to-air communications that you mentioned, and all those communications have been taped and preserved. And so you hear this incredibly calm Pierre Salinger getting the news. His code name was Wayside. And so the White House nickname, code name Crown, begins communicating with Wayside about their very... And what's astonishing to me is Crown had very little information to tell Wayside. They were getting all their news from the reporters. Uh, they were taking all their information off uh, the ticker. And so um, for a while, there was real panic in the air on that plane, as Pierre Solinger has revealed later in his memoirs, because they too thought they might be the target of a conspiracy. And eventually they were ordered to turn around and come back. And so you hear that dramatic moment when Crown actually calls back and, and confirms to Wayside that the president is dead.
2: The White House Situation Room relays the news to Press Secretary Salinger, codenamed Wayside, on the Cabinet plane which was flying over the Pacific. Uh,
3: Crown uh, This is Situation Room uh, relay following to Wayside. We have report quoting Mr. Kilduff in Dallas that the president is dead, that he died about 35 minutes ago. Do you have that? Over. The president is dead. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. New subject. Front office desires plane return Washington with no stop Dallas. Over.
1: The other extraordinary government tape is uh, the tapes that were made of President Johnson's conversations as he flew back on Air Force One to Washington. His really poignant call to Rose Kennedy. Yes. And to Nellie Connolly. And it- then the more mundane calls, which I'm fascinated by, which included Secret Service code calls back and forth from the plane to Washington to make sure that his daughter, Lucy, B- Lucy was hustled home from high school quickly. So, you know, I mean, it's just this amazing view of what was going on.
0: Hmm. There is, of course, another uh, killing that same day in Dallas. And, of course, we've already mentioned this uh, uh, police officer, Tippett, who is also killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, we We are treated to those events, including this extraordinary moment when we first hear of that killing by a passerby who uses, yeah. uh, uses a, a police radio to, to call this in.
1: You can almost see it in your head happening. Apparently, uh, a man was walking down the street, saw, saw Tippett's uh, body, w- jumped into his patrol car and began to frantically try to reach uh, police officials. And the police officials were were confused and kept telling him to, to get off, citizen, you know, get off the police radio. And he very accurately reported and persistently reported that an officer was down. And, um, you know, police followed that and, and came out and found uh, Tippett uh, dead. And this was in the middle of the hunt for Oswald, who was captured just minutes later in the Texas theater.
2: Less than an hour after the president is shot, a Dallas police officer is shot to death a few miles away. It is Patrolman J.D. Tippett. Here, a passerby uses Tippett's squad car radio to report the shooting.
3: Hello, police operator. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. The Citizen using his Police. Hello, we a shooting out here. Where is it at? The Citizen News and Police radio. Here, what location Between Marshalis and Buckley. It's a police officer. Somebody shot him. What's it 410 Street. 78. It's in a police car. Number 10. Number 10. 78. 78. You got that? Hello. Police officer, Did you get that? Police officer. 510 East Jefferson. Thank you. 35. The citizen using the police radio remain off the radio now.
2: A suspect is spotted running from the scene.
3: Hey, guys. Suspect running west on from the location. Hey, no physical description. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah. This is you here on 10th Street, 500 block. This police officer just shot. I think he's dead. 10 we have the information. The citizen using radio remain off the radio now.
0: It's striking, too, isn't it, to hear in some of those very first reports, he, he is called Lee Oswald, not Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: Well, uh, and he had aliases. When reporters went to the rooming house where he lived, um, he, he was registered at the rooming house as O.H. Lee. So it was a I mean, again, I find it remarkable they were able to sort out the story as quickly as they did.
0: That really was very, very impressive. Um, one of the uh, One of the most important decisions, of course, which had to be made by those who went on the air, was uh, at what point it was appropriate to announce that President Kennedy, in fact had been killed, and the sort of tortured means by which that official information was finally uh, disseminated. Uh, I had not realized that the time between JFK actually dying and the time that that information was finally transmitted to the world, how much time elapsed and what, what a difficult uh, time that was.
1: Well, the, the shooting apparently happened right around 12.30 Central Time in Dallas. Um, the first uh, TV bulletin was at 12.40. That was Cronkite's uh, bulletin. The um, official... Announcement was not made at the hospital until sometime around 1:30, so a very long hour after the shooting. The president, again, this is I'm, we didn't get into too much details of the clinical nature of of his death and when he died, but apparently died, was pronounced dead sometime around 1 o'clock central, but not this was not revealed until about 1:30. A Secret serviceman bluntly told Merriman Smith of UPI almost immediately after he arrived at the hospital, the president was dead. But yet, being the good reporter he was, he put that in his story but qualified, buried it, qualified it, you know, really didn't lead with it in the way that it might be led with today. And, again, I was impressed with the, the nuanced and careful reporting that did go on that day because CBS, for instance, was broadcasting its affiliates, uh, reporting from Dallas. Eddie Barker was the program director of KRLD in Dallas, and he had such good sources that he was hearing very early from doctors at Parkland Hospital uh, that the Kennedy, that the president had died, as was Dan Rather, who was a very young reporter for CBS in Dallas at the time. They were separately confirming through good sources that the president had died, and, you know, were, were very tortured in their decision to put it on the air, as was Cronkite. Um, in relaying them. And so there were hints, there were some qualified reports, sources said this is not official until finally Malcolm Kilduff, the assistant press secretary, did make the announcement at one thirty. Hmm.
0: So that famous instance then when Walter Cronkite on screen announces from Dallas, Texas, the official word, or, uh, apparently official, President Kennedy died and then momentarily chokes up, CBS had already before that announced at least at a couple of occasions the very real possibility that President Kennedy had been killed. So that is just the moment of official confirmation about what probably most people at that point maybe were fearing indeed
1: was true. Yes, there had been, including on CBS radio, there had been um, an announcement as well. So absolutely, but I mean I think it was done very carefully and, and done with a real sense of the gravity of, what they were getting ready to
2: announce. Shortly after 1.30 p.m. Central Time, Assistant Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff tells a room full of reporters at Parkland Hospital that the president is dead of a gunshot wound to the brain. CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite, wiping a tear from his eye, relays the official news to a shocked nation.
3: There were some fears and concerns in Dallas uh, that that there might be demonstrations, at least, that could embarrass the president, because it was only on October the 24th that our ambassador to the United Nations, Adley Stevenson, uh, was assaulted in Dallas, uh, leaving a dinner meeting there. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States.
0: I have to mention that I, I noticed in the announcement made uh, in one of the, over one of the radio networks, I don't remember which one it is now, uh, that announcement is made that, that President Kennedy has, has died. And then at the very end, as that announcement finishes, we hear for just a couple of seconds music and I know, a, 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 a typical listener wouldn't recognize it, but I can tell that it's Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. Yeah, yeah. It, they haven't queued up the record quite right, and so it, it sort of begins in the middle of the music, and it's at the wrong speed. Yeah. They're playing it too fast. Yeah. And that also gives us a little window into the chaos uh, of, of that day and the very difficult circumstances under which this news was being relayed.
2: Your narrator was also in Dallas that day, covering the president's visit as the New Orleans bureau chief for CBS News. Over the phone, I was told by a doctor and a priest at Parkland that the president was dead. Given what I'd just been told from the hospital, together with Barker's tip from what he said was a good source, I believed that the president was indeed dead. By telephone, I told this to my editors in New York, who debated among themselves what to do. CBS Radio went with the following report.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States is dead. John F. Kennedy has died of the wounds received in an assassination in Dallas less than an hour ago. We repeat, it has just been announced that President Kennedy is dead.
1: One of the really poignant audio CD clips that that I re- think is the most powerful on the CD is the moment when the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra announces to a completely clueless audience that there has been a shooting in Dallas. And this roar of grief and astonishment that goes up from the crowd just sort of hammers your heart. And then he says, before they can even absorb that news, he says, we will now play the funeral march and there's this, you know, second roar of of grief, and it really, I mean, even now, it practically makes me cry. It just, it really crystallizes what people felt when they heard the news.
0: I I had tears streaming down my cheeks as I listened to that for the first time, and I think it, it was interesting. It also takes us back to another age when you didn't have half the audience with cell phones, and uh, I mean, it was it was a different world in which we lived.
2: Ladies and
3: gentlemen we have a press report over the wires. We hope that it is unconfirmed but we have
2: to doubt it. That The President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. No. We will play
1: the funeral march from beethoven's 3rd symphony we learned it from radio radio was the dominant uh news over uh, you heard news often first from radio before television in those days so people were listening to their radios on corners or uh newsrooms would post bulletins and stories on their windows and so you'll see those old pictures that are fascinating of crowds standing around um Network um, uh, windows and and reading uh, tape Scotch tape stories. Uh, yes, taped.
0: you you have a photograph in the book like that, and I have to confess, when I first saw that, I thought it was a photograph where the faces of certain people in the crowd had been uh, removed somehow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, then,
0: and then I looked a second time, and then I realized, oh, those are sheets of paper on the window, and people are are reading. Those, those news accounts.
1: Can you imagine? But it was interesting. That was the weekend that television really came of age. Um, before that, television wasn't the dominant news source by any means. And um, it, for the first time ever in history, it went uninterrupted without commercials for four days. And it was really a momentous decision and sort of set the stage for future coverage of national emergencies. And it also really became the point that a lot of reporters believe that television surpassed print as what would become the sort of dominant news source in the country.
0: I wanted you to also mention something which I think is a a tremendously important moment on these audio discs. And that is... The, uh, the moment when we hear New York Times reporter Tom Wicker uh, filing uh, his, uh, I think, first assassination story with, with the New York Times home office. Uh, first of all, it's fascinating to me that such a tape exists, and, uh, and it's interesting in the way in which we're sort of taken in, in, into the midst of, of, of a reporter covering such a, a, a tragic y- event.
1: Well, Sure, I felt the same way. He's a legendary reporter, um, and uh, he was part of the White House press corps that went down to Dallas, and he had covered the president for his the term of his presidency so far, and I think probably felt some... Uh, Kennedy was the, uh, the first telegenic president. He was very media savvy. He really appealed in many ways to the people who were covering him, and was friends with some of them, not Wicker particularly, but certainly Ben Bradley, and and Hugh Sidey, and um, Wicker completely breaks down as he's dictating the lead. It starts off sort of very perfunctory, and, hi, this is Tom Wicker, I'm in Dallas, and in the dictation it says, "You know, now hold on, boys, you know, it's almost a caricature of the way newsroom people talk then. Take it easy, Tom. And he starts off, you know, paragraph, and he completely breaks down as he tries to say the words that President Kennedy has been Shot by an assassin in Dallas, and then he quickly recovers, and he and he moves forward. But you know, we interviewed him, and and he will. Many people diminish now. You know, they, I think they're a bit embarrassed about breaking composure. But many others, as we interviewed them, still wept, still wept, couldn't help themselves. Is that ever. right? Yeah, it was just. I don't think any of us can ever imagine what it must have been, what it felt like to have seen him and his stunning wife i mean every picture you see of her that weekend is of this ravishing woman in this raspberry pink suit and people reporters told us if you went to central casting you could not have chosen a better couple you know to play themselves as president and first lady and to see them cut down so savagely and to see her grief and her refusal to take off that suit saying i want them to see what they have done to him um i think many reporters it still haven't recovered from that. Hmm.
2: Reporters are supposed to maintain a professional distance, but many are deeply affected by the president's sudden death, especially those who closely covered him. New York Times White House correspondent Tom Wicker, while dictating a story from Dallas to his office in New York, is overcome by what he has witnessed.
3: Is the charge of a call from Mr. Wicker? Yes, put him on. Hello, I've got some dictation for you on the uh, Kennedy story. Yeah, where are you, Tom? I'm in Dallas. Yeah, okay, boy. Now take it easy. Um, Okay, this is Dallas, November 22nd. I don't have too much. This is just to get them started. Dallas, November 22nd. President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed here today, period. The President suffered a massive gunshot wound in the brain and was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, period, paragraph.
0: The book really takes us back in time in uh, riveting fashion. The book is called President Kennedy Has Been Shot, published by Sourcebooks, the book produced by the museum, and uh, Kathy Trost, one of the co-authors of this book. Kathy Trost, I congratulate you on a job well done, and I really appreciated the uh, chance to speak with you uh, about this on The Morning Show. Thank you so much for your
1: time. Oh, thank you.
0: The preceding interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2003. As of 2023, I believe Kathy Trost is still associated with Freedom Forum, a nonpartisan U.S. foundation dedicated to protecting freedom of the press and freedom of speech. It was Freedom Forum that funded the opening of the museum in Washington, D.C. back in 1997. Sadly, the museum was forced to close its doors in 2019 due to ongoing financial difficulties. But online access to their vast collection is still available through their website, which is museumed.org.